because it's Labor Day weekend, I want to start off talking about our labors, our work, and how the idea of work intersects with our monthly theme of vision. My labor, my paid work in this world right now is as an assistant minister serving the First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis. I've just started my fifth year here, and this is actually the first time I've ever spoken on Labor Day Sunday. Usually David is the speaker at, on this end of summer Sunday, but he's still on sabbatical for a few more days. Sabbaticals are just one example of the important renewing effects of taking a break from one's day-to-day -day work. And reducing the relentlessness of work is one of the key goals and achievements of the labor movement. Before I became a minister, I was a journalist for 20 years, and for all of those 20 years, I was a dues-paying union member. How many past or present union members do we have here today? Wow. Okay, more than I thought. That's awesome. In my experience, the overlap between union members and Unitarian Universalists tends to be on the smaller side. I think that points to some of the work we have to do to be inviting to people outside certain classes and certain professions. I'm actually a third generation union member. My dad was a public school teacher and my grandfather was a plumber. I still occasionally hear from my old union, the Newspaper Guild. I very recently learned that the Guild is working to protect my pension from shenanigans by corporate owners who would like to put less money toward the pension fund. You can never take your eye off capitalists. <laughs> and I am grateful for the, for the labor movement every day. Ministers don't technically have a union, but the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association comes pretty close by serving a number of union-like functions. We ministers are asked to pay an amount equal to 1% of our annual income in dues. In exchange, the UMA sets recommended pay scales for ministerial work and offers all kinds of resources. And if a minister ever has trouble with the boss, that would be you, the UUMA provides support. I'm very grateful for this almost union, too. At the same time, I'm very aware of the challenges that unions face in the global economy. The professions I've mentioned, plumbers, school teachers, journalists, ministers, these are jobs that can't easily be shipped off to China or done by a robot, so their unions have more leverage. But regardless of whether a union is feasible or not in a given profession or context, Workers tend to do better when labor is united. It was through one of the ministers whom I mainly see at UUMA gatherings that I learned a valuable lesson about my current line of work. The thing to always remember, this minister said, is that ministry is impossible. Ministry is impossible. This is one of those things I learned after becoming a minister. <laughs> They don't tell you ahead of time because you might have second thoughts. <laughs> but the thing is, rather than finding this a discouraging message, which is probably what I would have thought had I heard it in seminary, I actually found it reassuring because I have found ministry to be kind of impossible. It's not that the individual tasks of ministry are impossible. It's that the volume of what one could do never lets up. There are always more people to care for than minutes in the day. There's always another letter to the editor to write or another rally to attend. 
There's always more knowledge to absorb and to share with the congregation. It is not remotely possible to do everything that could be done. There are actually many jobs and roles like this, paid and unpaid work that does not come with boundaries pre-installed. Parenting is a common example. You can always think of more to do for and with your kid. Doing everything you might want to do is not humanly possible or financially possible. Being a writer or a composer or an artist is impossible. You will never get every poem or song written or paint every painting or perfect every technique. And the work of bringing about social justice or social change is impossible. There are always more people to help, more freedoms to be achieved or protected, more equity to strive for, more lives to save. I suppose for some people, hearing that something is impossible is a reason to not even try. But for a lot of us, having the reality named and acknowledged affirms what we already know and feel, that we've taken on something big, maybe even the work of generations. And knowing that can make it easier to keep at it. So part of my job, and part of any parent's job, and any justice seeker's job, really part of any job or role where a person has self-determination, is the work of figuring out what not to do. What tasks can a person look at and say, not my job? Sometimes it's pretty easy. When I was in the newspaper union, our contract was, was the size of a small book, and it spelled out exactly who could do what and for how long and for how much pay. Early in my career, when the news articles stay, still came out printed, on machine, printed out of machines on long strips and were cut and pasted onto the page, I was not allowed to handle those strips. I could only tell the typesetters, who were guys carrying little knives, <laughs> what I wanted them to change. Sometimes these detailed rules felt a little silly, but clarity and boundaries were all there in black and white, making it easy to know what was my job and what was not. Such questions are far more complicated out in the world of social change in this unprecedented time of rising authoritarianism. There are no carefully negotiated contracts to ensure precise outcomes. For humans who care about other humans and about human flourishing, who are concerned about systems that deny humanity and destroy lives and our planet, every day brings decisions about what to do and what not to do. And it is not remotely possible to do it all. One question to ask when deciding if something is not your job is, Will it go fine if I'm not involved? How essential am I, really? Can it happen without me? For ministers, for example, it would be great for us to attend every program or event, if for no other reason than to show support. But if we're confident it'll run smoothly without us, our time is often better used on something else. For anyone, such such a decision-making process is not without its risks. There's a chance that something we decided would go fine without our help actually won't go fine. That maybe we should have decided that that should have been our job. I offer as an example the governing of our country. Some some citizens are very happy with how well the, the, with how, very happy with the legislative and administrative outcomes of the past few years and how well those have matched their values and they didn't have to get involved at all. 
Others who did not get involved are less pleased with what's going on. Maybe they thought it would go fine without them, that it wasn't their job. I can confess to being one of the people in that second group. For most of the past decade, I thought our country was on more of an upswing than it actually was. There seemed to be enough elected officials keeping an eye on the greater good, and I thought there was at last some general agreement on the desired qualities in a governmental leader, in the areas of intellect, temperaments, and not being a white nationalist. So I didn't get directly involved. Not my job. I also thought we humans were on a slow but unstoppable upswing around race relations, nationally and even globally. I facilitated some racial awareness work in the course of my ministry, but mostly I thought things were going fine without me. We all do better when we all do better. Surely most people agreed with that, and inevitably we would all do better. Of course, there has been ample evidence in the past couple of years that things are very far from fine. Authoritarianism and white nationalism are thriving, and in some pockets of the world, the situation is verging on genocidal. Just a few days ago in the eastern part of Germany, as police looked on helplessly, neo-Nazi mobs rampaged through the streets looking for non-white people to attack. Right now on the Mexican border, American citizens, lifelong citizens, are being deported after having their documents taken away. Non-citizens were already being deport regularly deported to their deaths. And there are 500 immigrant kids still separated from their parents. There is much that is disastrous, dehumanizing, and deadly. These tactics to desensitize everyday citizens to atrocities are directly related to the present leadership situation. Racial purity and racial hatred are essential components of successful authoritarian nationalism. That's one of the reasons I keep talking about these issues, and one of the reasons we'll be having a special focus on racial justice this year at FUS. Racism is the persistent poison that makes the transition to fascism possible. And there is some impossible seeming work to do, both inside the congregation and out. Please check the monthly email that went out yesterday for details on how we will navigate racial justice with compassion and curiosity over the coming months. Also note that we have workshops on authoritarianism and tyranny coming up this month. I don't for a second think that I have the skills or the answers to reverse these terrible national and global trends on my own. My individual involvement is not that significant. But as with unions, there's power in numbers when justice and equality are the goals. History has generally not been kind to congregations and ministers and everyday people who have faced authoritarianism. Complacency, then looking away, then desensitization, and then forced collaboration have tended to happen in reliable succession. Present-day America has some advantages that give us a solid shot at, at history viewing us differently. And by us, I mean both the country and the congregation. It's hard to think of a time when it's been more important to know what your job is. Related to this is the idea of vision. Vision is often thought of as something oriented toward the future. But a clear-eyed view of the past and of the present is another kind of vision. 
And one of the things I've been trying to do the past couple of years is center the perspectives and visions of people of color, because there is a lot to be learned about how things really are in our country and how to be resilient and how to resist. I try to be very careful, though, about how I do this kind of learning, this kind of work, because I want to make sure I'm not shifting the burden onto others. From 19th century slavery to, to today's meat processing plants, white people in America have a long history of finding people of color to do the hard work instead of doing it themselves. And I don't want to be part of that pattern. I'm hearing from some people of color that ending racism and dismantling white supremacy, these things are not their job. It's the job of privileged people to learn, but it's not automatically the job of less privileged people to take the time and effort to do the teaching. Similarly, similarly, some women in the Me Too movement are very publicly saying that forgiving abusive men and making space for their return to public life is not their job. They argue that the needs of women and not the wishes of perpetrators should be what's at the center. Of course, there are huge numbers of people of color and women working for their own liberation and for the liberation of all, but it's best not to assume who those activists want to assist. White people and white men hold vastly disproportionate power and wealth in this country and are responsible for the present situation. So I get it when there are heavy expectations of privileged people to put their privileges to use in these times. Sometimes centering the voices of people of color means listening to a powerful radical poem, like the one by, by Martina Espada that we heard at the beginning of this talk. When I was looking over the lines of the poem this past week, I found myself shaking my head and a bit stunned, both by all the painful topics in the poem and also by its audacity. I found my heart to be heavy. This isn't the year, I thought. Sure doesn't feel like it. It feels like another year of a country in reverse with its foot on the gas, speeding away backwards from human progress and toward a frightening decline. This is the year when some of our worst imaginings have become reality, and even some of the things we couldn't have imagined. This year, I thought, it's the year for barely hanging on, not the year for radical improvements. Or is it? I sat with the poem some, and then I sat with it some more. I sat with the poet's idea, a dream, really, of immigrants deporting judges. And I realized that immigrants who can vote, and the children of immigrants, and their children, which is most of us, immigrants who can vote actually do have the power to deport judges, at least from their chambers and their positions. I sat with the poet's seemingly far-fetched description of descendants of lynch mob executioners apologizing. This poem was written in 1996 back when the author would have no idea that in 2018 a huge $15 million memorial to thousands of lynching victims would open in Montgomery, Alabama. This important step toward acknowledging and reconciling this horrible past actually happened this year. And I sat with the idea that would-be tyrants, conquerors on horseback, are not gods that they are mortals who could drown in a river or be washed away in a rising tide 
or disappear in some kind of wave that may come. This is what artists and justice seekers and visionaries do. They share their imaginations and they feed our own. Maybe there is something to this year. It all depends on how united we are in our labors and what each of us decides is our job. May we all choose well for the good of each of us and the good of all. May it be so. <laughs>